0: Hello, and welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. This is a pre-lap. I'm Jason Hammond. I'm here with Todd Norwood.
1: Hey, Jason. So we're just going to follow up a little bit on our last doping podcast that came out recently. And although this is not actually about doping, it's sort of a, a tangent to one of the things that we talked about doping. It's a paper I came across that was actually published this year, and I found kind of interesting for, for two different reasons. Uh, and one is the relationship to some of the things that we discussed during the doping podcast. That said, I will say there's maybe some limitations to this paper, uh, and we may not want to overapply. But the so the punchline is quite interesting.
0: Okay, get it out, Todd. Let's hear it.
1: So I think we've talked in the past. Like, okay, well, what do we do in the lab that predicts cycling performance? And we say, oh, VO2 max. Throw it out the window. That doesn't predict anybody's performance. We know that a certain level of VO2 max is probably a price of admission for being a good level competitive cyclist. But just because your VO2 max is higher than the next racer does not mean that you are going to beat them every single time you line up. So, okay, VO2 max we know is out. And you know there's other things we've looked at in the lab. That we said, okay, well, these do- things don't matter. So, anyhow, these folks went through and they looked at all these lab values and said, "Well, what is it that can predict? You know, is there anything that's a lab value that's predictive of cycling performance?" And lo and behold, they came out with body fat percentage. Body fat and percentage. I'm sure,
0: yes. Body fat percentage is the only thing that can can determine performance. performance. Yes. Yeah. So they they took what a hundred people and they took their performance levels by their category or their race results, I assume. And then they they got a bunch of other information about them, and the only thing that correlated with their performance was their body fat percentage.
1: Yes, and so I wish I could tell you it was 100, it wasn't quite. And so yes, they looked at other things, they looked at their VO2 max, they looked at peak power output in a, a stage sort of a test, uh, they looked at other physiologic parameters, and body fat percentage was the one that stuck out. So now here's a couple limitations in terms of the study. They only actually looked at 29 competitive individuals and they were all competing at either the national or international level. So you can feel pretty good about that. I mean, at least a semi robust result. Now, I think one of the limiters is, is not going to probably be predictive for your elite level cyclists, your senior class cyclists, because these are mostly cyclists either in the junior or U23 age group Uh, the mean age of the population was 18 and a half and the standard deviation was two and a quarter years. So you're looking at younger, younger riders here, but you could extrapolate and say, you know, a younger rider with a lower body fat percentage is more likely to have success at this level. Now, I don't think that's the only thing that's happening here. I think there's some other factors that are at play, but it is sort of an interesting conclusion to say, here we have all these fancy lab measures, and I, mean, I don't know if you've ever done a, a body fat test. There's a couple ways to do it, but there's really simple calipers that you can use to calculate that's fairly accurate. Um, like Some simple thing you could do with cheap calipers at home would be more predictive of performance than a fancy VO2 max test is an interesting conclusion.
0: I think it's interesting because I noticed in my own performance, so I started riding when I was 16. I started racing when I was 18. I noticed a trend towards lower body fat percentage without intentional you know, weight loss. And the reason for that was I did strength training, which increased my total muscle mass and I didn't gain weight when I was strength training. So you normally see increases in muscle mass and decreases in body fat when you don't gain weight. During strength training. I also noticed that, you know, I was doing more miles, so there is this trend towards lower body fat, even from my own experience, but it could have been just on its own a training adaptation. The, the lower body fat percentage could be a result of the improved fitness rather than a correlation, if that makes sense. They're, they're, they're intertwined because they're sort of the same thing.
1: Right. As you increase your training volume, you're probably getting leaner. If you're maintaining your body mass, but you're adding muscle or you know fat-free mass, therefore your body fat percentage is going down. There's a lot of things that are happening there that are reflected in body fat percentage that are not just purely a number. And I think if you, you know, go to the extreme end of the scale, one of the interesting things they talked about is like, males in particular can have very, very low percentages of body fat without um, documented negative health effects. But you, you and I both know that just being really, really lean is not going to make you win bike races. There's more to it than that. There has to be an aerobic system that supports that and you know other pieces of the puzzle that happen there. So I think to your point, what they're seeing in the study is that, yes, the riders who have low fat mass are very fit, and the low fat mass is probably the result of the fitness, not the thing that's driving the fitness.
0: And so, what other um, what other values did they test? If if you have that available,
1: yeah. So they looked at um, body mass. They looked at VO2 max. They looked at uh, peak power output per body mass, so watts per kilogram, and then peak power output at watts per kilogram against free fat mass.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I, I was wondering if they did, um, like, hematocrit or any any blood markers either.
1: No, they're just looking more at, like, lab, physiologic lab values versus okay. purely, like, blood draws or anything like that.
0: Yeah, I guess two points that I have on this is we all know the story of Mark Cavendish, um, and specifically British Cycling had a really aggressive recruitment program in the early 2000s for new cyclists, and they made them all do... a I think they made basically all of the uh, upper elementary school kids do some sort of cycling test and the best athletes at, you know, in sixth grade were chosen to, to be developed. And, you know, Mark Cavendish, his story is he was like the chubby kid, uh, when he was growing up and he just enjoyed riding his bike. And he had, uh, an older coach friend mentor who said, just ride 15 hours a week and don't worry about anything else. And he, he just became obsessed with the sport and very good. And so he has sort of a negative view of these uh, analytical tests or these predictive lab tests to see someone's potential to, to be a good athlete. Um, and the other point I have is one of my collegiate teammates who was a Cat 1, he always said every, improvement that I, every category improvement that I made was associated with a loss in weight. And so he personally, his experience was lowering his body fat percentage, lowering his total mass was kind of predictive for him and in, in his ability. And I think that was because he started at like 170 and now he races at around 150. So um, it could be for someone who comes in at a higher total body mass, they may see this trend with their fitness and their total body mass more layer, you know, there's a higher correlation for someone who starts with higher body mass. But there are also I always like to see the little riders line up for the road race, especially out here in California, the really lean riders, because you know, they won't make it four hours, because they just don't have enough fuel, they don't have enough energy. So I think it's always funny that when people emphasize, you know, low body mass, low uh, total fat content, it's like, hey, if come to California, you don't need to be lean here, you just need to be really strong and be able to fuel your efforts.
1: Yeah. And so I think the correlate I was drawing from what we talked about in the last doping episode was some of the effects of the substances that athletes are taking and the effect on both, but primarily on uh, body fat and lean, being able to lean out with some of the like salbuterol, uh, for mm. example, and saying like, okay, well, you know, these athletes obviously partly for uh, muscle building, but also for being able to be leaner and reducing fat mass. And okay, well, here's Potentially some evidence here again, with the limitations we've touched on before, that may kind of support and align with that that approach and that thought process. of why why am I taking this thing? Oh, to reduce fat mass. Why? Because that has a, a proven effect on performance in some you know in some areas of elite level cycling.
0: And then the area that we should be careful with is you know these drugs are dangerous, and so making sure that they are used safely, uh, although some of them are not WADA approved or USADA approved, but the other point is you probably don't need the drugs to get to a pretty good body fat percentage either. Um, It's only these Tour de France riders who are getting very, very, very lean who um, are willing to make these sacrifices to to get there. So yeah, I, I do think body mass has some effect, but do it safely and do it carefully and make sure you see the bigger picture of of being strong and lean is uh is valuable if you want to be fast
1: yeah i think there's a lot a lot more going on in terms of your fitness than just a number when you go to measure your body fat however you decide to do that whether it's calipers or something fancy like a dexa
0: yep so uh, that's all we have for the pre lap today get out there and go ride your bike